Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and co-host of the 35 West podcast. With how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Um, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. I'm Chris Hernandez-Roy, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director with the Americas Program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. On Sunday, August 30th, Ecuadorans went to the polls to vote in a snap election clouded by political upheaval, violence, and uncertainty. The campaign was marred especially by the assassination of vocal anti-corruption candidate Fernando Villavicencio, who was shot down leaving a rally on August 9th. The country is suffering through a wave of unprecedented violence, with the murder rate doubling between 2021 and 2022, largely attributed to the activities of transnational criminal groups working in tandem with homegrown gangs. Villavicencio's murder cast a long shadow over a process which itself stemmed from the tumultuous attempted impeachment of President Guillermo Lasso on corruption charges and his subsequent dissolution of the National Assembly in a constitutional move known as the Muerte Cruzada, or crossed death. With no candidate on August 20th securing the margin needed to win outright, Ecuador's period of political uncertainty will stretch on further, and with it, important questions of security, democracy, and the future of U.S.-Ecuador relations. To cover a number of upcoming elections in Latin America and the Caribbean, 35 West will host a special series of conversations, El Rumbo Democrático, or The Democratic Path, to furnish listeners with insights into the region's most important elections. Joining us today, we're especially fortunate to host Sebastián Hurtado, president and founder of the Quito-based political risk consultancy, Profitas. Together, we will dig into the lead up to the elections, how the interlocking fight against corruption and organized crime has permeated this process, and what to expect as we look ahead to a runoff in October. Thank you for joining us today, Sebastián. Thank you for having me, Christopher. It's a real pleasure. The assassination of Villavicencio exerted a profound influence over everything we saw during the recent elections, from the decision of several candidates to temporarily suspend their campaigns to the strong showing from Cristina Zurita, Villavicencio's successor. In your opinion, what was the impact of the assassination on voters? To what extent did this tragic episode change or alter the results of the election? The killing of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio has no precedent in Ecuadorian history. It was a very shocking event that completely changed election dynamics in, I think, two key ways. First, it likely prevented Correismo, which is the political party supported by former president Rafael Correa, from obtaining an outright win in the first round election. In Ecuador, a candidate can win in the first round of the election with either 50 plus percent of valid votes or 40 percent of the votes plus a 10 point difference with the runner up candidate. Most credible polls showed Luisa Gonzalez, the Correista candidate, reaching the second threshold right before the assassination of Fernando Villavicencio. However, I think the death of a longtime rival of the Correistas definitely waited on her soft base of support, with subsequent polls showing a, a steep decline 
in support of her of up to 10 points right after the assassination, in the days following the assassination. So that's one thing. On the other hand, I think the assassination provided sympathy, support, Fernando Villavicencio or Zurita, who replaced Villavicencio, and a significant boost of support for outsider candidates in general, and especially right-wing candidates focused on security. For example, Jan Topic, but somehow Novoa too. So I think it was a double significant impact in the election that completely changed the course of the first round election and completely reflected on the final results. The Via Vicencio assassination encapsulated a series of trends we've been observing in Ecuador in recent years, namely the intersection of surging transnational criminal groups with heavily entrenched corrupt interests. These challenges will not dissipate with the successful inauguration of a new president and will promise to be critical challenges to whoever next occupies the office. Former President Rafael Correa that you mentioned a minute ago was convicted in absentia for corruption during his administration. And outgoing President Guillermo Lasso was in the process of being impeached for corruption when he called for snap elections. So clearly graft and impunity are profound changes for Ecuador. But how would either of the candidates advancing to the second round propose to address this? What is the role for civil society and international actors in helping raise awareness about criminal corruption? Well, both candidates acknowledge the problem and both call for significant reforms in all the state institutions involved in investigating, prosecuting, and punishing white-collar crimes. However, Ecuador has gone through that process multiple times through legal and even constitutional reforms before. I personally believe a government that will be in office for just 18 months won't have the time nor the political leverage to significantly change deeply entrenched corruption practices that have actually survived almost untouched for decades. It's not a new thing especially because it will have much more pressing economic, security, and social issues in their hands, this new oncoming government. I think an active local civil society demanding transparency and reform, as well as, I don't know, significant cooperation with foreign governments and international agencies in terms of exchanging financial information, cooperating in following up on criminal activities, I think that will be crucial to limit the extent of criminal corruption around state activities. Unfortunately, I think fighting corruption is a task that is beyond the current capabilities of national or state institutions. And unfortunately too, I think it's usually a minor concern for most political leaders who are, I think, very comfortable on how things stand right now. Regarding corruption, you just said that the national authorities tackling corruption is really beyond the capabilities of the national authorities. That might beg the question, therefore, whether Ecuador could benefit from some sort of an international anti-corruption support mechanism, such as what we saw until a few years ago in Guatemala, and one which is currently being discussed and negotiated between the United Nations and the government of Honduras. 
Would there be appetite in Ecuador for some sort of an international support mechanism to help fight corruption in the country? I think that's definitely needed. And it will go a long way into helping Ecuadorian institutions deal with the situation. I'm pretty sure the Coristas won't support something like that. They are more into trying to build our own independent nationalistic institutions. That could be an option for Daniel Novoa, I could guess, but it will be in any way a sensitive political issue here, especially because, you know, there's several or substantial conflicts of interest between the people who are supposed to fight white collar crime and the fact that many of them are somehow involved in the same corruption that they are supposed to be fighting against. So due to that fact, I think the intervention of international or civil society, but especially international independent institutions could be crucial in terms of cutting these ties between corruption and public officials who are supposed to be fighting that same corruption. Right, right. You mentioned white-collar crime. I want to turn for a second to more harder kinds of crime. Inspired by President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador, hardline or mano dura policies have become increasingly appealing across the political spectrum in Latin America and among a whole bunch of current and aspiring leaders. And this has occurred in Ecuador as well, as candidates from the left and the right have called for intensified efforts to tackle organized crime. Where do Gonzalez and Novoa each stand on this issue, this issue of hardline policies? And what security policies can we expect for either of them? Well, it is interesting to see that President Bukele is one of the most popular political figures in Ecuador, according to several local polls. And in this election, actually candidate Jan Topic clearly modeled it. He ended up being fourth in the election. So he performed well. He basically modeled it in his campaign as like an Ecuadorian Bukele. And I think that definitely provided him with a significant edge. There was demand in Ecuador for something like that. I think any incoming president will have a clear mandate to deal with crime in any way possible. And I think both candidates have promised to do it aggressively. I think Correistas put more emphasis on intelligence gathering and social policies, while Novoa is emphasizing more the use of better trained and equipped security forces. I think that's the difference between them. I think Ecuadorian security forces and other crime-fighting institutions are really prepared to deal with this kind of international organized crime, which are the source of most of the surge in violence that we have registered in the past few years. I think that dealing with such a threat will again require significant institutional reforms, training, resources, and uh, unless the incoming government makes it almost its sole priority, I think it is unlikely that it will be able to significantly reserve this concerning trend in such a short period of time. As I mentioned before, we are electing a government that will only be in office until 2025. 
And I think if they really focus on tackling violence and crime, especially the most violent parts of crime in Ecuador, which is really concentrated in a specific parts of the country, especially the coastal areas near the ports, that's where you register the most dramatic parts of the crime wave or the violent parts of the crime wave in Ecuador. So they could do some work there, but they will really have to use all their political leverage and all the available resources to tackle that problem. If they try to do many more things at the same time, I wouldn't expect for the new government to make significant advances in that area. Right. And we recall for our listeners that the outgoing president, President Lasso, had to convene states of emergency or invoke, I should say, states of emergency in certain municipalities around the very important city of Guayaquil, given the intensified activities of organized crime in those areas. Back to this notion or this fact rather than a notion that whoever wins in this next round will only have about 18 months to govern. You mentioned that a couple of times that there will be a new election sometime in 2025. So given this short period of time and aside from these questions of security that we've been discussing, what else will they have time to focus on? For instance, how are they going to tackle or what have they promised to do to revise and revitalize Ecuador's sluggish economy and create jobs, for instance? Yeah, I think the instability, the political instability of the last six years with significant, but I would say inconsistent constitutional and institutional changes, political destabilization through street protests, as well as the Muerte Cruzada process and this new cycle of elections that will extend through 2025 effectively, have all definitely taken a toll on the business environment in Ecuador. And it is part of the reason of why Ecuador has performed worst in terms of economic growth than some of its neighborhoods. I think to turn things around, the first order of business for the new government is to build some credible governability going forward and hopefully agree on a few key reforms that could somehow help build investor and consumer confidence in the next couple of years. I think that without a clear path for governability, we are bound to repeat the cycle of conflict and destabilization under which no economic growth or job creation will be possible. I think with some political stability and maybe a few key reforms in specific areas of the economy, for example, mining, I think the new government could eventually attract investment and boost growth. Keep in mind again that still an 18-month government might not necessarily make investors very excited. But I think the sole fact that we have a new government with a new mandate with a new, different political dynamic in Congress, that could provide an opportunity to just improve some of the problems that businesses have been facing in the last few years due to the political instability. 
Well, let's turn to Congress then for a minute. All eyes are on who might be the next president, but the elections on August 20th were also to renew the 137 seats in the National Assembly, the results of which will have the power to constrain or embolden whoever takes the office of the presidency next. When it comes to Congress or the National Assembly, Revolución Ciudadana turned in the strongest showing, with nearly 40% of the vote. However, in the absence of a clear majority, what role can we expect the National Assembly to play under either a González or a Novoa government? Indeed, the Correistas will again have the largest block in the new National Assembly, even increasing their representation with, I think, four or five additional seats. In that sense, a Correista government will only need the support of an additional 70, 20 representatives out of 137 to build a majority, something that is within reach and will provide them with governability. So I think Coristas will have an easy time with the new National Assembly. However, it is important to understand that the overall composition of the new National Assembly will be very different from the one that was dismissed back in May. We have to remember that the previous National Assembly had an unprecedented representation of Pachacutic, which is the indigenous political party, and Izquierda Democrática, which were the second and third largest bloc in Congress, both of them, in the outgoing Congress. I think the presence of both forces made the previous National Assembly very left-leaning, which in turn made it nearly impossible for a right-wing lasso government to advance any significant reforms. And that was a significant part of the political confrontation that we've had during the last administration between the last government and Congress. But you know, Pachacutic and Izquierda Democrática had almost no participation in this election. That's due to internal conflicts that basically prevented them from presenting candidates at a national level. I think that combined with the strong performance of right-wing candidates like Topic, like Surita, like Otto, and Novoa, for sure, I think will bring the new National Assembly closer to the political center. And I think that will make it easier for Daniel Novoa government to build a supportive majority and eventually advance some reforms. So I don't think it is a bad situation in terms of Congress for an eventual Novoa presidency. In any case, I sincerely hope that the new government and Congress understand that they will only be there for less than two years and focus on addressing pressing problems instead of finding ways to destabilize each other, which has been the case in the past couple of years or more than that. You mentioned mining. Two major environmental referendums were also passed in the election, one calling for an end to oil exploration projects in the Yasuni National Park, and the other prohibiting mining in the Choco Andino region northwest of Quito. What's the significance of these results in light of Ecuador's continued tension between economic and energy security on the one hand and environmental protection on the other? Personally, I think that it is very unfortunate that Ecuador is increasingly relying on referendums to make such significant policy decisions. 
Because the fact is most voters have no direct stake in the outcome of these referendums. It is interesting to note, for example, that voters in the region closer to Yasuni voted in favor of continuing to extract oil in the region. Well, you know, the response in the areas around Choco was different, basically due to the fact that contrary to Yasuni, where there is a major ongoing oil operation, no significant mineral extraction is currently taking place in Choco. But anyway, I think the vote sends a new major political message in favor of conservation. And I think it eventually opens the path to other national and local referendums or new regulations that could further restrict the development of extractive industries around the country, regardless, actually, of whether there's actually any potential environmental risk involved. As I mentioned before, oil and mining are the only industries that have the potential to attract significant foreign direct investment and multiply exports in the short term. I don't see any other potential area for something like that, at least in the really short term. And especially in the case of mining, Ecuador has substantial mineral deposits that are underdeveloped as compared to neighboring countries like Colombia, Peru, Chile. There are currently only two large-scale mining operations in the country, which just in a couple of years have increased Ecuadorian, total Ecuadorian exports by 10%. So I think we definitely should protect environmentally sensitive areas, but surely there are areas where oil and mineral extraction can be expanded without environmental damage. I think we need to have an educated discussion and find a balance but outright provisions via referendums don't make much sense. In any case, the Yasuni referendum calls for stopping oil production in that area. And that will have a significant impact on the economy in general because that amounts to 55,000 barrels per day which amounts to total production of over $1 billion per year and has some fiscal impact of between $150 and $200 million per year. So stopping production in Yasuni will be significant. However, I think any incoming government that will be there for just 18 months will have every incentive to drag their feet on the implementation of this specific referendum. So let's see. Turning to international relations for a minute, the strong showing by Luisa Gonzalez and other Correista candidates on August 20th has led many analysts here in the United States to predict a worsening of U.S.-Ecuador relations. Is such a decline inevitable if Revolución Ciudadana wins the presidency? What can the U.S. do to shore up ties with Ecuador, regardless of who wins in October? I don't think it's inevitable. I think a Correista government will not necessarily be anti-U.S. I think it will, however, privilege South-South relations, what they call South-South relations, like the UNASUR organization in South America or the BRICS 
blog internationally, for example. I think they will also support any initiative that somehow limits the political and economic influence of the U.S. around the world, and especially in Latin America. I mean, that's their theme. Among them, some initiatives that could eventually reduce the influence of the U.S. dollar in trade and finance. However, I still think that there will be significant areas of cooperation still with the Korista government. For example, security, migration, trade, drug traffic, and also balancing the influence of China in the region and in Ecuador. The influence of China in Ecuador has significantly increased in the last few years. So I think Koreistas are part of a political reality in Ecuador and they won't be going anywhere anytime soon. So I think the U.S. can be pragmatic enough to deal with a government that is not of its liking and find areas of collaboration. I mean, the U.S. clearly does that in other parts of the world, like with some governments in the Middle East, for example, or even with Venezuela most recently. So I think both sides should try to keep an open mind and see and be a little bit more pragmatic and, and try to tackle the common problems together. Is there something that we didn't cover? Is there anything else that you'd like to highlight or add to our conversation today? I'll just say that this has been a very unusual and unprecedented election cycle, one that has been shaped by tragedy and a highly polarized political landscape. I think Ecuadorians should hope that whoever wins the runoff, or we should all hope that whoever wins the runoff receives a strong political mandate. Sebastian, thank you for joining us today on 35 West. It was really a pleasure having this conversation with you and to learn about what's going on in Ecuador. Thanks again. Thank you, Christopher. And that's it for this week's edition of 35 West. We hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes.